Kia ora, I'm Emil Donovan and today on The Detail. In 2017, the bacterial cattle disease Mycoplasma bovis was discovered in New Zealand. And the government embarked on an ambitious project to do something no country had done before and eradicate the disease. Four years on from that announcement... There's been a major milestone reached in the fight to banish cattle disease Mycoplasma bovis. Just one farm now remains infected four years into the eradication program. But just as plagues of locusts follow thunderstorms of hail and fire, another potentially catastrophic misfortune is threatening our borders. Farmers say an outbreak of foot and mouth disease in Indonesia could have catastrophic consequences for livestock here. And bad though M. Bovis was, foot and mouth disease is a whole different ballgame. This has been always considered the doomsday disease uh, for the New Zealand farming sector. Potentially 100,000 jobs, $10 billion worth of exports and obviously the knock-on impact that that has to the economy. Uh, it's, a, it's a massive risk to New Zealand. So today on the podcast, what are the chances of foot and mouth breaching our borders? What preventions have we put in place? And what's our plan if the disease is discovered here? What does foot and mouth actually do? And what does this mean for farmers, some of whom have already had to cull their herds due to M. bovis, to have an anvil like this hovering over their heads? Carolyn Gates is an Associate Professor in Veterinary Epidemiology at Massey University. Maybe a good starting point with this is to chat about what this disease actually uh, is. Absolutely. So a foot and mouth disease, um, shorthand is FMD, is a very contagious virus that's actually been subject to international regulations for several decades now, just because it has such a major impact on a lot of different livestock species. If you're not familiar with it, it infects basically anything with a cloven hoof. So that's our cattle, sheep, goats, buffalo, pigs, deer, alpaca, and llama, and about 70 species of wildlife as well. If foot and mouth disease does come into a herd, how can you tell and what are the negative impacts that it has? Sure. So the, the classic signs of foot and mouth disease are blisters around the mouth, the tongue, the um, border between the hooves and the skin just above the hooves and around the udder and teats. And so um, anytime you see those those type of signs, it's very likely could be foot and mouth disease. There's a couple of other diseases that can be somewhat similar to it. Um, so when cattle, sheep and pigs get infected, um, because of those blisters, they will stop eating because their mouth is painful. They will uh, often become lame, so they won't want to get up or move around. And they'll also have decreased production levels and growth rates as well. It doesn't kill animals so much. It, it can kill a small number of animals. But the main thing is it makes them unable to eat and unable to stand up because the foot lesions, especially on larger animals, make it so painful they must lay down and they can't eat, so they just waste away. And in most cases, they so the animals are destroyed. So they can get in um, clinical signs of the disease relatively shortly after being exposed to the virus. And for most adult cattle, they'll recover. I should say, I shouldn't say cattle, just animals in general, they'll recover within about two weeks. Um, similar to like what we've seen with long COVID, there are some animals that will be impacted for much, much longer time periods. One of the real concerns is if it gets into younger animals, that there's much, much higher mortality rates as well. So it can have very, very big production impacts on a lot of different species. And so w w why are we talking about it now, Carolyn? What has happened in the world that has made it relevant to New Zealand? So, so FMD has been a problem 
worldwide for, for ages. It's something that's been talked about, but more recently what's got us worried is the outbreak that's happening in Indonesia. All of these cows are infected with foot and mouth disease. They are dairy cattle, but their milk production has dropped by more than 70% since they became ill. These cows will likely be slaughtered in coming weeks because farmers here say they cannot afford to keep caring for them. So FMD is currently widespread in Southeast Asia, Middle East and Africa. Um, Indonesia itself was foot and mouth disease free up until they found the first case in April and they're in the middle of controlling a major outbreak right now. And so what really kicked off the latest scare about it was when Australia was doing some testing of imported animal products, they found fragments of genetic material of foot and mouth disease. Viral fragments of the disease have been detected on meat products in a supermarket, as well as on luggage and goods brought into Australia and in meat products imported from China. Which is suggesting that, or reminding us at least, that it can come across the border and that we need to be extra cautious with, with one of our close neighbours having foot and mouth disease. There have been, I think, about 40 case reports over the last 100 years of humans getting very, very mild infections from it. But it's, it's not considered to be a public health risk because it's you almost never see transmission to humans. And there's no problems with eating the meat or milk from animals. But I imagine that a lot of people would have concerns about it. But as, as far as we know, there's very, very minimal public health risk. And yet when foot and mouth disease does break out in a herd, almost invariably the herd ends up being culled. From Cumbria in the north to Essex in the east, from Wales in the west to Gloucestershire in the south, more than 750 individual outbreaks have led the government to order the slaughter of more than a quarter of a million animals. Why is that? So one of the problems with foot and mouth disease is it's very, very contagious. So basically animals that are infected will just have virus coming out of every single bodily fluid and a lot of virus. So that means that animals that are in direct contact will get infected very, very quickly. And it also, because it's stable in the environment, which means it can survive for a really long time without being an animal, um, it can contaminate the local environment. It can spread through windborne transmission. It can spread through water. Anyone coming on and off farm can track it elsewhere on clothing and equipment. And so once it is in a herd, um, the chances of being able to keep it contained are very, very low. And so that's why um, for a country that doesn't have the disease, they tend to go in hard and fast, trying to stop it before it spreads any further. And so when you look at, the, for example, the 2001 UK outbreak, they as soon as they found an infected premise, I can't remember the exact radius, but it was something like three kilometers around, they would call all the other farms because chances are by the time they found that infected farm, it had already spread through things like windborne transmission or waterborne or even like wildlife moving back and forth between farms. And so they wanted to, to get it out of the country so fast that they went with the very um, strict approach of just calling a lot of animals for it. As the bonfires continue to spread across England, so does the threat of an epidemic. It's been grotesque. It's been the worst thing I've ever had to do, and it's been quite revolting. I just hope that in future that other people don't have to put up with this, that I've had to do this last half hour, last hour or so, because it's just quite unacceptable. They were able to get back to put, put mouth disease free status within uh, about a year, mm. but it is absolutely devastating when that occurs. But longer term, it tends to, to get the economy back on track faster, particularly for a country like New Zealand, where we're so dependent on international export markets that having those closed to us would be absolutely devastating. And that being said, it's very difficult to predict exactly what control measures would be put in place. So for example, in Indonesia right now, they're relying a lot on vaccination because for their population, which is much more small scale subsistence farming, it would be absolutely, absolutely devastating. Um, and have a huge impact on food security just to go the culling approach. So a lot really, really depends on what the outbreak actually looks like when it happens.
New Zealand's in a really good position at the moment for reasons that might not be immediately obvious. New Zealanders would be well familiar with the Mycoplasma bovis outbreak over the last um, few years. You've had the opportunity to test your systems so that the experience of New Zealand will mean that New Zealand will be better prepared as a result of the lessons that have been hopefully learned out of Mycoplasma bovis. So in terms of the disease itself, very, very different with Mycoplasma bovis. So Mbovis is a bacteria. It's very slow spreading. The animals tend not to show a lot of signs from it. Um, so it spreads through very, very close contact, like um, respiratory secretions. So animals like directly coughing on each other and through milking machines and through calves suckling dams. Um, it doesn't, urine and feces aren't thought to be major spreaders. So the animals really have to be in close contact for it to happen. Um, if a herd does get infected, tends to only be about 5 to 10% of the animals within the herd that get infected. And that transmission may take place over months and months and months. So it's a very, very slow moving, moving disease. It's also a little bit harder to diagnose because once that bacteria gets in, it's not constantly produced by the animal. So they might shed some of the bacteria for a few days and then stop for a few days and then start again. So it makes it very, very hard to detect infected animals, which is why they had to go the culling route. Because if you try testing individual animals in a herd, you get so many false negatives with that, that it's not a really good indicator. So compared to foot and mouth disease where everything is happening really fast, everything's getting infectious, infected and infectious very quickly, we had a lot more ability to plan out a more structure control uh, control program for mycoplasma. In terms of the actual control programs, I think as devastating as it was, I think it was a really good test case scenario of how to actually manage an outbreak response. Um, the, other, the other thing I should mention about mycoplasma is it's not under any international regulations. And so for us, having that disease didn't impact our ability to trade. Mm. So that also gives, I think, a little bit more flexibility with the outbreak response because we weren't pressured by having to re regain uh, export markets again. Um, but it was a very good test case scenario of how the response system operates. And I think there's been a lot of lessons learned about what went well, what didn't go well. A lot of research projects in place to understand how we can provide farmers and veterinarians with better support. Well, a study of the psychosocial impact of M. Bovis on Southland's rural communities has found the government's response was bureaucratic, slow, inhumane and traumatising to farmers. The University of Otago study also found MPI ignored local knowledge, including that of rural vets. A lot of infrastructure development and getting diagnostic test results into labs uploaded and shared very quickly. And certainly, I think in terms of compliance with putting in information into Nate, that has jumped up a lot too, as far as I'm aware, because people have seen the value of, of being able to have that contact tracing ability mm -hmm. and how much of a difference that makes in being able to identify the size of the outbreak and target control measures rather than having to sort of guess where animals may have been or in contact with. If FMD were to enter the country, how would it get in? So basically anything coming across the border can potentially carry the virus because as we said, it, it lasts a really long time in the environment. So the major risk pathways are going to be um, any food animal products coming into the country. If they're going the, the registered route of import, then there's a lot of regulations in place around which countries they can come from, how they have to be treated and handled in the country of origin. And then there's often um, surveillance done post-border to make sure that the products coming in are safe. So that, that's one route. Very, very low risk from that, again, just because there's such good regulations around managing the risks for that. The other big part of that is going to be all that is more informal crossing the borders. That's our international travelers. So anyone who's been in a country with FMD that's been in contact with livestock can have virus on their 
clothing and camping equipment to bring it in. And we know that passengers often will try to bring in food products or mail-in food products, and any of those can potentially contain contain the virus. The Balinese love their cattle and they have them in the backyard and then they walk them out during the day to graze and they bring them home at night. So they walk them past your villa. There's plenty of opportunities for tourists to come across discharges from cattle, if not the cattle themselves. And so until vaccine arrives, the cows will be at their sort of shedding their maximum virus and they're in a place where they'll be interacting with a lot of tourists. There's like a lot of things that have to occur for a major outbreak to occur. And so probably it's hitting the border. I think we've got good measures in place at airports and mail screening to try to remove as much like the contraband animal products coming in to minimize risk. We're screening travelers and asking them if they've come from foot and mouth disease endemic countries. But I think it would be naive to assume that it's not, at least some, is not getting over the border. The question is, like, what happens once it is in here? And so if it doesn't come anywhere near in contact with a livestock population, great. It's just if it does manage to get onto a farm, that's when you could see an outbreak. So in terms of our preventative uh, measures that we that we have taken here, I mean, we're taking this very, very seriously. Damien O'Connor, the Agriculture Minister, came out a while ago and said... It has been always considered the doomsday disease uh, for the New Zealand farming sector. What have we done to prevent that from happening? What have our initial steps sort of been? I think there's a couple a couple of different uh, different aspects of that. One is certainly around the border control. So the best thing is to stop it from getting into the country to begin with. Mm-hmm. And so we talked a little bit about that before. I think the next step in that is raising awareness of what signs to look out for. Because one of the critical things with any outbreak is being able to detect it as fast as possible. Because the sooner you can stop transmission, the the smaller the scale of the outbreak you have to deal with. And so there's been a lot of efforts to raise awareness about the signs of foot and mouth disease, um, encouraging people to report anything suspicious to the MPI incursion investigation team to look at. And so I think that's been a positive as well. And then the third part of that is really around strengthening our ability to respond to an outbreak. And so once it does come in, having the pipelines in place of you know how do we do the diagnostic testing, who is available to go out and help with the different elements of control, what do we do with things like if we're calling, how do we handle animal carcasses, how do we handle diagnostic testing? And so there's been huge packages of work in the background around getting all those logistics in place. And so MPI actually does have a document online that you can download, it's about 30 pages that goes through what an initial outbreak response would look like. But there's a lot, lot in place around around how to respond very, very quickly if something is detected. I'm curious about that. Like, if, if you know, obviously this is a sort of known unknown, but in, in terms of that plan, what would the plan be if foot and mouth were discovered in, in New Zealand? Can you paint that as much of a picture as we know of that? Yeah, and so, um, so if you actually go to that document, the first 72 hours of an outbreak is pretty much fixed. And so as soon as the first case is detected, the country would be put on a movement standstill for livestock, so nothing would be allowed on or off or no live animals be allowed to move on or off a premise. Um, And again, that is to stop the spread until we get a handle on the extent of the outbreak. And there would also be measures in place around um, preventing people from basically moving on and off farm as well, because we know they can track track disease. And so the first 72 hours of the outbreak is really about locking things down until we know um, where that disease came in and who it may have been in contact with afterwards. The real question mark is, is what happens after the 72 hours because if it's just like one or two isolated farms, that's very, very different than if it's in multiple regions across New Zealand. And it's very, very difficult to predict ahead of time what the most effective response would be. Um, there's just so much uncertainty. 
Do we have any idea as to what the, you know, just to sort of ground the seriousness here, you know, as to what the economic implications of FMD would be, not only on the, well, I mean, obviously on the primary sector, given how reliant we are on that in terms of the export market, but also wider implications for, for example, tourism. This could really be quite catastrophic, couldn't it? Uh, absolutely. And so, it, again, it depends on the size of the outbreak and how long it would take to control it, but, you know, it could be millions to billions of dollars. In the event of foot and mouth reaching New Zealand, all trade in animal products would be stopped and rural businesses such as farms, farm contractors, animal processors and transporters would be affected. Animals would be slaughtered and more than 100,000 jobs in the primary sector would be at risk. Um, and, and that's divided both into those direct impacts. That's from culling animals and the reduced production from them, but then all those indirect factors too. And so tourism certainly being affected because if you have foot and mouth disease in the country, you don't want tourists coming in and tramping between farms and spreading the disease. Um, they don't want to be taking that back to their country as well. We've got the loss of trade and exports because obviously a huge amount of our production here goes overseas. And so even if we're still able to produce, there's just nowhere for that stuff to go until we're free again. Mm. Um, consumer fear, even though there's no real public health risk from FMD, um, we know that people are going to still still suspect that there's problems with it. And so there's lots and lots of, of, of different costs as well. Um, so it's, it's one we want to keep out of the country. And if we do get it in, get it out as soon as possible. And you mentioned earlier as well um, the idea that Indonesia is relying heavily on vaccinations as a method of dealing with it. The issue I understand in Bali is a shortage of doses of the foot and mouth vaccination. Well, that's the issue in most of the country, in fact. The government's only brought in a limited amount of vaccine. When you want 10 million doses of vaccine, you don't get it next week. So they've only received a very small number of doses. They've prioritised them mainly to the dairy areas and some intensive beef areas in Java. And uh, Bali's got 2,000 doses for 600,000 head of cattle. Is that an option here, or are vaccinations in the area of FMT actually a bit more complicated than that? It's a little bit more complicated making the decision to vaccinate. Um, so there's a number of, of challenges with using vaccination as a control measure. And so one of those is just having enough doses available. And so I think in Indonesia, they've already gone through something like 3 million vaccine doses wow. in a short period of time. So you've got to manufacture those, have them available to the strains that are in your country. And then once you have the vaccine, you've actually got to have enough personnel to go out and administer it without having those personnel be further transmitting the disease as they're going from farm to farm. The other problem with vaccines as a short-term control measure is once you do put the vaccine in an animal, it's going to be probably two to three weeks before they have enough of an immune response against it. Mm -hmm. And during that time period, they can still get infected and infect other animals. Um, And the last complicating factor with that is if you're trying to regain access back to international export markets, a lot of the, the surveillance and screening tests we use to prove that a country is free from disease is based on looking for an immune response. Um, and the problem with our current diagnostic tests is they can't tell the difference between an animal that has mounted an immune response to the vaccine versus one that has mounted one to the virus. And so as long as there are vaccinated animals in your population, um, it's harder to prove freedom from disease. And so there's different restrictions around, around your ability to trade because of that. Um, I think for Indonesia, the main reason why they went with the vaccination route is just Again, because so many of the farmers are depending on these for subsistence, that it would have such a major impact on food security to just go through and cull everything. Gee, wow, we're in a bit of an opposition here then, aren't we, in that, you know, there are these preventative measures that we can enact, and we most certainly are enacting them in terms of screening the, you know, people and imports that are coming in from affected places, and 
correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems that what you're saying is we'd have to be pretty unlucky for it to get here, but we can absolutely be pretty unlucky in this kind of area. It's, it's a roll of the dice. <laughs> it's, just, there's, it's so hard to predict what, what's going to happen. Gee, it must be... I mean, we're venturing a little bit outside of the epidemiological element of this here, but I'm thinking about what it would be like to be a farmer in this situation and the fear and the emotional impact that it would have knowing that, you know, just a couple of years after you might have had to kill thousands of your cows, that scenario might crop up again. Farmers get a lot of stick, but boy, it's a hard industry to be involved with emotionally, I imagine. It's a, it's a hard industry enough, like on a on a day to day basis, even yeah. without dealing with these, because you're responsible for the care of so many animals, and you can't just take a break because they need to be fed and looked after on a daily basis. But I, I can only imagine how much stress has been added because of this. Certainly for the farmers who are directly impacted by mycoplasma and have their herds called, because they may have spent years and years and years building up the genetics and getting their herds just right. It is absolutely absolutely devastating for that to happen. Um, and then to have a sort of like constant overhanging fear that something else could come come as well. Uh, and, and, and lots of studies into the mental health impacts of, of foot and mouth disease. And we know that they are significant. Mm. I think I think we've, fortunately, New Zealand, kind of like with the COVID response, we're lucky in that we've been able to watch how the rest of the world has dealt with this in many different countries with many different circumstances. And so I think we've been able to learn a lot from looking at those those FMD responses and come up with the procedures and policies that will help New Zealand. We've got a good idea of our resources. We have good people that we can tap into to help help with an outbreak response. And so I'd say um, we're probably doing a reasonably good job. There are some areas we can improve on, like I was mentioning before, with the increasing um, recording and movements and uh, personnel. But but overall, I think um, it's about probably about as, as much as we can hope for at this stage. And, and with it, with any outbreak, there's just so many unknowns, and we make the best decisions we can with the info we have available. Mm-hmm. And we learn from it and grow as the outbreak does. We're hopefully not if we've got to control measures in place. That's it for today. I'm Emile Donovan. The Detail is public interest journalism funded through New Zealand On Air and produced by Newsroom for RNZ. You can get us downloaded free to your mobile device every weekday from any podcast platform. Today's episode was engineered by William Saunders and produced by Sarah Robson, Mark Jennings and Bonnie Harrison. And thanks to Carolyn Gates. Matewa.